EY provides our services around the world in a huge number of regions and markets. And effectively what we do is we do a number of services. We audit and do accounting. We provide taxation services. We provide strategy and transactions services. And we also provide consulting services. AI can really augment humanity. It can supplement what we do it can improve society. And I think that some of the augmentation that's happening just now for humanity, for instance, in health and life sciences, is brilliant. And I'm so excited about it. I don't think we should escape to Mars or live in a simulation. I think we need to ensure that whatever it is that we do now, from this point on, we have humans at the centre of the AI design and that we create the guardrails to ensure that it is economically viable, whatever it is that we're doing, that it is socially observant and that what we're doing is, um, I guess, for the benefit of mankind. This is Siana TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Katrina Campbell, who is the uh, Client Technology and Innovation Officer at EY. UK and I, a very warm welcome, Katrina. Well, thank you, Hendrik. Delighted to be here today. Katrina, you have a Master in Psychology of the uh, University of Glasgow. In 2001, you created a very successful company, an international technology design agency called Saren. Uh, that was acquired by EY in 2015, where you have been working ever since. And in 2020, you were appointed as the CTIO for UK and Ireland. So, Katrina, Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Who are you really? What's your background? And how did you arrive in this Who am position? I really? I love that question. <laughs> Thank you very much, Hendrik. Well, well, you mentioned psychology, and I think the really interesting part of that is psychology is a hugely varied field. And there's one particular part of that field of psychology that I specialised in, and that's called human-computer interaction, or HCI. Yeah. So what's hum human-computer interaction? Well, it's, it's all about the computers and the humans and that translation when you're designing and building technology and an HCI person fulfills that translation job. They translate what the human needs from the system to the coders and developers who design and build that system. Mm -hmm. So I have been working in the field of computing or technology for, for a very long time. I probably shouldn't say how long. <laughs> so, so that's me. And you mentioned Saren. Uh, well, Saren was the agency that specialised in HCI and built some of the most incredible systems um, from 2000 when I founded it all the way to 2015. And it continues in EY, as you said, after the acquisition. OK, so we're here at EY headquarters in, uh, in, in London. Um, and so most people will, of course, know EY. It's a big brand. But give us a little bit of context. How big is it internationally? How big is it here? How is it organized? What kind of services do you provide? Give us a bit the context. So huge organization. Um, here in the UK, uh, we're uh, roughly 19,000 people. And effectively, what we do is we do a number of services. Uh, we audit and do accounting. Mm -hmm. So that's one specialist part of our business. We provide taxation services. We provide strategy and transactions services. And we also provide consulting services. And within consulting, that means technology consulting, people consulting, supply chain risk consulting, etc. So uh, across those four big business units, yep. EY provides our services around the world in a huge number of regions and, and markets. Okay. And you are the Client Technology and Innovation Officer. That's right. What does that really mean? Well, the, really, the role is twofold. So client technology is all about building, designing, building, and, and delivering the services that our clients need from us 
via technology. Okay. The innovation part is all about how we build those. Mm -hmm. So when I look at uh, a really good example, for instance, is we provide taxation services. Mm -hmm. How can we do taxation services much, much better using technology, using AI, RPA systems? And I'm sure we'll get into that more. But it's effectively how can we help our people by building the right technology to help them do their job faster, to service our clients better? And how can we interact with clients through technology to make it easier for our clients? Okay, very clear. Now let's start from the top and let's talk where we are in business today. I mean, we live in challenging times, I would say. So where do you see the biggest uh, challenges at EY today or, and also at your clients? What are, how would you describe the, the business context of today? Well, I think um, we, we refer to the trilemmas. At the moment, we have some significant issues when we look at the market. So, so money, for instance, the easing of quantitative easing, for instance, um, money, the inflationary environment we live in. Yeah. So money is becoming, uh, it's becoming difficult. We also have energy issues. We have the decarbonisation agenda. We have energy uh, problems in terms of our, our supply and demand. Yeah. Um, and then also equally, we have supply chain issues at the moment caused by some of the conflicts going on around the world. And I think when you look at those trilemmas, organizations are facing incredible disruption. Mm -hmm. They also have to bear in mind that we have to transform business. And in order to transform business, we need to have the capital investment, the technology infrastructure, and the talent to go with it. Yeah. So I think given that really difficult economic pressure on businesses. It's really hard to do some of that transformation activity. And I see those as challenges that we are helping with in terms of our clients day in, day out, but also we're transforming ourselves. Yeah. And we're doing that at speed, mm -hmm. Hendrik, and we're doing an incredible job of it around the world. Okay. So there's a lot of economic pressure on companies nowadays, financial pressure and, and so on and so on. So is there still room? Is there still budget? Are there still resources to innovate? You know something, I think as long as you um, create the right ROI, the right business case in mm -hmm. order to innovate, then yes, there is. Yeah. There'll always be disruptors out there, Hendrik. And I think that a lot of our clients are seeing the value of creating those business cases in order to disrupt themselves because customers are demanding it. Yeah. Customers are demanding, they're more demanding than ever before. They're demanding more for less. They're demanding, there's price pressure, there's competitors out there. They are fleet of foot and happy to move providers more than ever before. Yeah. And I think given the choice out there, the customer demand that's out there, we've really got to transform ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we're transforming ourselves in EY as well as we're supporting our clients do that. And I think as long as you have that right business case, then yeah, plenty of capital in order to do that in yep. our experience. So innovation, transformation, it's not a choice. I mean, it's, it's a must do. Everybody Correct. must do it. You have to go through it in order to survive the, yep. the climate and thrive in, uh, in, in, in the future. So let's talk a little bit more about innovation, digital innovation here in, uh, in EY. Um, what is in general your approach or strategy towards innovation? And do you have a specific innovation model maybe? We do. Now, a number of years ago, a chum of mine, a chap called Clive Grinier, was working at the British Design Council. Mm -hmm. And um, the British Design Council realised that actually, in terms of methodologies, there wasn't one unique methodology for innovation. So as outgoing chair of the Design Council, he put in place a, a team to work to do just that with business. So they asked a whole bunch of businesses, listen, how are you doing this? Startups all the way through to scale-ups and, and big industry. And they happened upon the double diamond technique. 
Now, the double diamond is an innovation methodology which helps you diverge to discover what it is you need to do. Talk to your customers, do that discovery work, do your market research, mm -hmm. then converge on something that you feel is right. Yep. Develop that with your customers so you diverge again and then converge down into something that's tried, tested and collaborated on. Mm -hmm. So the double diamond is something that we use throughout EY in order to innovate and it really is in terms of um, what I believe, it's incredibly efficient yep. in order to create that innovation. We ensure that whatever we do, whenever we're building anything innovative, whenever we're building a technology solution or a service for a client, that we have humans at the center of the process. Mm -hmm. There's no point innovating in a bubble. So unless you do that double diamond, you innovate with humans at the center of the process, yep. at the center of the transformation. And you can't really go wrong in my experience, Hendrik. And I've been doing it for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> so is innovation something that is done just in one team and they get on with it and they do, and, and the rest of the company just do the normal day-to-day -day job? Of How does that work together? So, We've democratized innovation. Mm -hmm. We have innovation champions around the world. Okay. We have a global leader of innovation. His name is Jeff Wong. And what Jeff has allowed us to do throughout the organization, throughout the regions, is to innovate because we're close to our clients. Mm -hmm. So it's not done in a bubble away off in the US or wherever. Yeah. It's done with our clients in the regions where we feel the need to innovate. Now, the Innovation Champion Network works to a, a there are a number of different uh, ways, templates, methods, processes. Mm -hmm. But effectively what we're doing is we're innovating with clients, for clients. We're then taking the best practice and we're globalizing that. Now that's what's really interesting. Mm -hmm. It's unique to innovate at source and then globalize to scale that. Now we all know that going from startup to scale up is not easy. Oh. I've been there, I've done yep. that. <laughs> so that's exactly what we do. We create a little startup, a little product or a solution with a client in one region. Mm -hmm. We'll then test that in other markets and then we'll scale that. And there is a global fund dedicated to scaling innovation. And that fund led by Jeff Wong is where we apply for funding. We get delivered the funding. We get the product marketing, the product management, all of the things, the skills that we need in order to scale. Yep. And we scale that for our clients globally. Okay. Let's maybe talk about one or two of examples of, mm -hmm. of, of things that you and your teams here have innovated and, and that you have grown from an idea mm -hmm. to, uh, to, uh, to maybe a, a, a global practice or, or, or tool to use. Mm -hmm. Could you share as an example? Sure. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, now, obviously, I mentioned that EY does four things. It does tax, it does audit, it does strategy and transactions, and it does consulting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to focus on consulting for the first example. Okay. Now, I mentioned that some of the consulting we do is risk consulting. So let's propose you're an organization and you're growing fast. You have a risk officer. That risk officer keeps you on the right side of the law. It keeps your boardroom um, on track and it makes sure that the, the risks that you encounter in your business are dealt with and managed. Now, the risk officer is very closely aligned to the CFO and the COO in an organization. Mm -hmm. But that risk officer um, needs as much support as he can have from data across the organization. Okay. Now, what we've done is we've built a tool. It's called Virtual Internal Auditor. And what that effectively does is it manages the risk of an organization through software. It convenes the data across an organization around the risks, the perceived risks mm -hmm. that the business has. It then allows you to create a templatized approach to managing that risk. Mm -hmm. It monitors the risk in an organization and it will pop up 
predictions based on AI algorithms, mm -hmm. predictions of where a risk might be turning into an even greater risk. Yep. So your risk officer doesn't need a massive team of individuals monitoring and managing risk. The software application does it. We have this as a managed service and as a SaaS solution. We also monitor our own risks internally as well using said yep. software and technology. So that's a really good example whereby um, what we've done is we've taken what a team of individuals would do and we've managed it into a software as a service application. Okay. And use that internally as well? Correct, do correct. Use your own dog food, drink your own champagne? Uh... Yes, yeah. Another really good example is the next one, so ESG reporting. Mm -hmm. So we were the first of the big four to create a revolving credit facility, which is ESG linked, mm -hmm. so cheaper credit. What we had to do is we had to prove that we were meeting our ESG targets. Mm -hmm. So what you really want is you know, to understand all of the jurisdiction challenges, all of those different nuances yeah. and have it in one place yeah. so that you know in this country, this country, this country, these are the rules, this is what you have to adhere to. So you do need all of that data in one place. It's yeah. kind of like an ESG brain sitting at the centre <laughs> of a, a boardroom yeah. um, telling you how you're doing. And I think that what for me is very exciting about that is working with Microsoft, one of our alliance partners, mm -hmm. we've been able to create an incredibly and inherently usable device to do that. Yeah. So based on the Microsoft stack, it's based on teams. ESG teams around the world can convene in their little team around mm -hmm. that one work stream. They can see how it's doing and using Power BI as a front end, we now have indicators of how we're doing yeah. and we can predict uh, what work we need to do. So a really fantastic technology built on Microsoft Stack, mm -hmm. uh, helping our business and our clients yeah. monitor and manage ESG. And when you develop an idea like that, what are the, what, what's the most difficult uh, aspects of that? What's the most difficult challenge that, challenges that you have mm -hmm. if you want to put something like that in place? Well, I think that any innovation leader or, or CTO would, would find the same challenges I find internally here and also with our clients, is that it's getting the buy-in for the idea at the mm -hmm. start. Now, for me, getting the buy-in has never really been a problem because for me, it's all about creating the proof points, mm -hmm. creating the proof, doing the market research. Yeah. I mentioned the double diamond, diverge around the discovery. So what we do is we have an organization within our business that does all of that research for us. We'll go and we'll speak to 50, 60 clients and say, listen, would this be useful? Do you have Microsoft? Would you like this? This is what it looks like. Yeah. We do that research up front. Fundamentally, if you've got that data, you've got that proof point, then you know that it's going to be a value to the client. Now we do that internally as well. Mm -hmm. So we dealt with our COO here in UKI and our ESG team here. Yeah. And we said to them, what do you think? We then went through the process and they helped us create the, the um, software yeah. uh, data points and we monitored the software as, as we went. So you're saying that getting the, the budget, getting the buy-in uh, is, is typically the most difficult part? That's typically, I, I don't think that the development's an issue. I mean, the, it used to be so hard to develop. Now with APIs and with really mm -hmm. great partners like Microsoft, we've mm -hmm. been able to build some incredible technology, super quick actually, yeah. Hendrik. So yeah, I think it's the buy-in of the organization to do mm -hmm. things. Um, I think it's creating those proof points. And then I think it's the storytelling that you have to do mm -hmm. in order to create the ROI at the end so that for the next one, it's easier to get the buy-in mm -hmm. because you've made something a success. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the human aspect of all of this. I mean, 
having the buy-in, doing the storytelling. I mean, that's something that I see you doing wonderfully, <laughs> using the technology. Yeah. If you partner up with Microsoft, there's plenty of technology there. How about the team? How easy is it to find the right people and to, to, to get them working on these, these programs? Mm. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, gosh, we're so popular um, for, for technologists now, EY. Ah, okay. it's, um, it's, it's been incredible to work with some fantastic grads. So mm -hmm. last year we hired 1,200 grads mm -hmm. across UK and Ireland and a huge amount of school leavers as well. And what's brilliant about this organisation, Hendrik, and you'll have to forgive me for because I love this place, um, is that we offer every single employee in EY globally a free technology MBA. Wow. Mm -hmm. Free. Mm -hmm. That's provided by the Halt International Business School. That's mm -hmm. our partner. We also have a free master's in data analytics and data science, and we have a free master's in sustainability. Now, those are three areas that EY has really, really focused on over the last few years. In fact, um, we've been quoted in the press as over the last three years, we've invested over 1.8 billion in technology and technology services mm -hmm. for us internally. Yep. That's internal investment, 1.8 billion. That's a lot of money. So it's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And we've got some fantastic people. Yep. So the great training that we have leads to some great people. And those great people, I find, are desperate to help innovate yep. EY. So the, the, your trick to attract top talent here is to one of the aspects, besides giving them a good salary yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. everything around that, is to give them free education, technology-wise, data science-wise, sustainability-wise. Yes, so it's that, but it's more at EY. Um, we have some incredible clients, so mm -hmm. the work is really interesting. Yeah. But we also are a lovely company to work for. Mm -hmm. So we in the UK have this incredible social program called the EY Foundation. Mm -hmm. And we give our staff the opportunity to work with the EY Foundation. Last year, 2,200 um, school leaver age kids went through some kind of program with us either mentored by our people yeah. or supported in some way by our people. We also have EY Ripples. It's a global program where charities, third sector, small organizations apply yeah. and our people get to work with those and that's for free. Yeah. So we have a very good social conscience in EY mm -hmm. and I think that is of huge benefit to the people who are joining us now. And we are hugely sustainability focused. And again, I think that's incredibly important yeah. to people now as well. So I mean, that, that sets you in this, I mean, a completely different place than most organizations because most CIOs I talk to, they're complaining that they can't find the right and attract the right people. And so you see that, you say that's easier because that's basically the business as yeah. well here, attracting top talent and making them available for yourself and, and, yeah. and, and for clients. So that is, that's quite exceptional, I would say. Uh, in the preparation of this uh, interview, Katrina, you also told me about that you have a center of excellence around neurodiversity. Correct. I found that very, very uh, fascinating. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, thanks for raising that. So within the um, technology and innovation team that I look after, we mm -hmm. realized that we needed some more data scientists, some more data engineers. And data science and engineers, well, you know this, they're hard to come by, mm -hmm. um, even in EY with our fantastic um, perks. Yeah. Um, and they typically won't stay longer than a couple of years in an organization. So about six years ago, our global neurodiversity center of excellence was set up in Philadelphia in the US. And there are a number of teams around the world. And the neurodiversity center of excellence is effectively 
a dedicated space and team mm -hmm. to create an extended supportive environment for those who self-identify as having neurodivergent mm -hmm. traits. No. So it could be dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, ADHD, autism. No. So those are the five traits that we created an extended environment for. Mm -hmm. So we decided that we would do this as well. And uh, about a year ago, just over a year ago, because we've just had our one year anniversary of the team, we created a team in Manchester okay. with the support of um, Alison Kay, who's on our board, and Howell Ball, our chairman. We created a, an extended environment for them in Manchester and we started recruiting. Now, this is the really interesting bit, Hendrik. The team in the US had realised that actually when people go through the normal recruitment process mm -hmm. for a big four like us, it's interview, 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 it's personality questionnaires, it's all this stuff, right? That's not necessarily the most neurodiverse, friendly way to recruit people. Yeah. So we changed that, completely changed that. We don't force interviews on our staff. What we do is we invite them to create an essay to, if they would prefer to have an interview, they can have an interview. Mm -hmm. However, they write an essay, they tell us why they want to be part of our neurodiverse centre of excellence. And then what we do, Hendrik, is we invite them to a thing called Super Week. Okay. Super Week is a four or five day work experience, mm -hmm. either on site with us or remotely from home. Now they may have a setup they prefer, they yep. may prefer to work from home, but that work experience week helps them understand how we work mm -hmm. helps us understand their skills yeah. and then we decide whether or not it's a match. And what for me is fascinating about this is that we've now realized that actually we could change all of our recruitment processes to be more neurodivergent friendly. Yeah. Um, in the UK, it's said that one in five people have a, some kind of neurodiversity, okay, neurodivergent. If we're catering for 20% of the population, then, you know, let's do it properly. Yeah. So our recruitment team have won a number of awards for this because they have been changing the way we do our recruitment. Yeah. And I'm really excited for the future because I think universal accessibility, something I've always championed in terms of design, well, we're redesigning the recruitment process to make it more universally yeah. accessible. And after a year, can you talk a little bit about the results? I mean, what's the added value for you guys? Um, apart from the, the, the scarcity of these yep. uh, specialists, let's say, yep. are there other added values by, by hiring um, neurodiverse people? Yeah, t totally. I mean, some, we call it superpowers. Mm -hmm. Some of the individuals who joined us who have self-identified as neurodivergent and who want to work in the space of data analytics have never worked in data analytics before. Mm -hmm. okay? They may have a maths degree or they may have enjoyed a mathematics or, or a, a university, but they're joining us, some of them, the vast majority of them, as a first job. Mm -hmm. What's fascinating for me is the retention. Okay. We've managed to retain our staff, uh, but we've also managed to retain them working on some pretty significantly important client projects. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a real example. Um, we've been working with a massive city council, a government um, organisation in the UK, um, to help them understand their carbon emissions mm -hmm. across this huge organization. Uh, one of our data scientists, um, he uh, created this uh, algorithm and uh, he created this algorithm in a couple of days. The client was blown away. The client thought this would have taken weeks. Yeah. And here we were providing something to that client because of the lateral thinking, the different way of thinking that this particular individual had, and he's, by the way, a total superstar. 
um, working at a couple of grades above you know, where he ought to be really delivering this project, yeah. um, the client was blown away. So you know, thinking differently, thinking with that superpower, that data analytical kind of mindset yeah. has been phenomenal for our clients. Okay, and, and in order to do that, you need to make sure that you have the right recruiting process for that, Correct. that you have the right working the right environment, environment the right, for people yep. and the right management style exactly, as well, I can, exactly. I can imagine. So we actually have a dedicated um, coach for that team. Okay. So we recruit in cohorts of seven or eight people, mm -hmm. and we have a dedicated individual who just looks after that team. Okay. Very unlike our normal model, where you come in as a grad, and then you're in a big team, and you're put on client projects, etc. Now, this is a very, very as I said, extended supportive environment. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and it's worked. We're in 11 locations now around the world with our NCOEs, as we call mm -hmm. them. And our retention rate is, uh, from the first center in Philadelphia, 95, 96% over five years. Whoa. So they have stayed there for the last five, six years. Yeah. So that's very different than the typical consulting retention rate, very you can different. imagine. Well, uh, for data scientists, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not necessarily for all our staff. We're, we're a pretty good firm to work for. So Katrina. Lots of innovation going on under your leadership and in general in the company here with the right people, uh, of, of different kind of people, with the right technology, with the right buy-in and funds, uh, funding and so on. So let's dive a little bit deeper and let's look at the role that AI, artificial intelligence is playing in innovation today. Uh, so, so what's your global perspective on the role of AI? And then maybe let's dive in a couple of examples of great, what you do. Great, great. Well, my favorite question of all, actually, Hendrik, because as you know, a couple of years ago, I started writing a book about human-centered AI. Mm -hmm. It's called AI by Design, available in all good bookstores. Um, but, you know, fundamentally in EY, we believe that AI has to be harnessed for us, mm -hmm. for our staff, and also for our clients. What do I mean by harnessing? I mean, let's look at all of the individual use cases where we can deploy AI to take the mundane out of the job. How can we support our clients? How can we be more productive for our clients? How can they be more productive? Yeah. So AI really is managed centrally with a lot of the innovation. And we deliver a lot locally that gets then adopted and scaled, as I said previously, with much of our innovation. Yeah. But really importantly, we have a global governance of our AI. Mm -hmm. And this is something that keeps our AI ethical and unbiased. Mm -hmm. Two really important words when it comes to AI. Mm -hmm. Because I think that with the democratization of AI now through ChatGPT, yep. um, people are really understanding the value of this, but not necessarily understanding the implications of doing or it wrong. Or the dangers and yeah. Correct. Yep. So for me personally, one of the most important things that we can support our clients do is to create the governance for the organization to really manage AI yep. for the benefits of its staff, mm -hmm. its shareholders, yep. and indeed its customers. Yep. But there's different types of AI. Maybe let's classify them a little bit. Mm -hmm. eh? well, once we, we, we talk, uh, talked about GPT, GPT-4, Midjourney 5, I mean, it's, it's an amazing time that we live in. It is. And, uh, and do, how do you look at that? Is this uh, really the, like the, the personal assistant that everybody was waiting for that, that can just help you to do your job 10 times faster? Is that, that what's going on? Um, well, I mean, I'll give you an example. We, we um, codify millions if not billions of pieces of information mm -hmm. for our clients. So if you look at taxation services, mm -hmm. okay, there'll be 
loads of receipts within our organization. Some will be VAT, some will be non-VAT, for example. Yep. We've created a document intelligent platform using AI mm -hmm. that will sort those receipts yep. through DocIntel and put them in the right area. Mm -hmm. Now that is taking a huge mundane issue yep. away from our staff, helping them to do more forensic examination, for instance, mm -hmm. of the accounts. And, and I think that AI is very, very good at the moment. Narrow AI is very good at select services like that mm -hmm. that we deploy. I think where when you look at AI for something more complicated like creativity, you mentioned ChatGPT mm -hmm. and Midjourney and Dali Mini, for instance. Yep. If you look at it for creativity, I think then it gets a little bit more tricky. Okay, mm -hmm. because I think without really the source data, without understanding where information has come from, which is the main issue with ChatGPT, yep. then you can't necessarily rely on the information. So you have to make sure that you've created guardrails or safety mechanisms within an organization if you're going to use it for creativity. Yep. So I'll give you an example. Um, if we were going to deploy a, an LLM, we would ensure that we had the data sources appropriately understood. Yep. Um, we would then insist that within the guardrails that our staff understood how to use it. So we'd be doing training. We'd be having governance and procedures in place so that we had the checking yep. of it um, before any kind of deployment. So really important that you create those guardrails and those checkpoints within an organization. Um, I think it's fabulous and it's, it's, it's going to be incredible for lots of different use cases, mm -hmm. but I think the innovators need to make sure that they are building it sensibly. So Katrina, what you're saying is uh, we have to make sure that we create governance and checks on, on AI because before we know it, we're working with black boxes. We don't know what data has gone in, what biases have been built in. Is, is that a concern? It really is a concern. Um, I'll give you a real life example. We have, um, we have a governance here within EY. We follow a framework called the Trusted AI Framework. Mm -hmm. That reports directly into our Technology Leadership Council at the very highest level of our organization to ensure that whatever it is that we are building yep. has an unbiased and an ethical standard built yep. in. One of our favorite clients, um, AstraZeneca, I know Cindy Hoots is yep. the CTO, um, yep. recently um, was discussing with me the way that um, they were managing and governing AI. And of course, incredibly important for a pharma company. You're going from wet labs to software labs. You used to create you know, pharmaceuticals in, uh, you know, it would take decades. Then years. Now what we're doing yep. is we're, we're talking about using AI to shortcut yep. a huge amount of that, to create personalized drugs, et cetera. And she was talking about the work that um, we'd done collectively to help them govern and manage their AI within AstraZeneca globally. Um, I think that's going to be something that organizations are going to have to do. Mm -hmm. And if they're not already doing it, boards should be very aware that this is a huge risk to the business okay. and that they need to start managing it. So what would you say, what would your advice be to, I mean, to the average CIO, who I can imagine is still struggling with this. They're still in the discovery phase then maybe in the, the first uh, proof of concept uh, process, what is important for them to make sure that they take AI serious and they're not, not left behind? Yeah. So I think probably the most important thing to do is to make one person responsible for this. Give someone a job, yeah. make it their responsibility to ensure that there's governance in place across the organization. Then make sure that people are educated about this stuff. Okay. So um, I think really importantly for us, 
we have a, uh, we call it our digital badges program. We have an AI training program that, or, that anyone in the organization can tune into, can pick up and can understand exactly what AI is. Mm -hmm. Now, when I think about the training that organizations offer, they need to ensure that that is sector specific, that they understand what's already going in their organization and they can help their staff understand how to deploy AI or how they will work with AI effectively. So you have to make one person responsible for it. You have to make sure that people understand it and are trained in it. And I think the last thing probably is you need to create the right use cases. You need to innovate correctly around it. Mm -hmm. And that also needs to be someone's job. It's something that uh, needs to be done within guardrails, uh, safety guidelines, and you need to make sure that whatever it is that you're doing has humans built into the process. Mm -hmm. Really importantly, I've mentioned humans at the center a couple of times, really, really important when it comes to this, that you have humans augmenting yeah. your, your artificial intelligence programs. Now you've written a, a very interesting book on this, so that means that you have kind of a little bit of a crystal ball. So if we look into your crystal ball, how do you see this evolve? Where will this bring us? And of course, it's impossible to predict the future, but where do you see this going? How will this change? I mean, knowledge jobs like we have here around us. Uh, what's going to be the bigger impact of this? Yep. So it's a great question. I wish I did have a crystal ball. <laughs> what I can see happening is um, much like when I started working in the internet in, uh, in the 90s, mm -hmm. Um, we need to create standards around this, mm -hmm. or it really does get out of hand. I think for me, when I started working in the internet in, the, in 1995, it was very early days, and there were no design rules of thumb. People were developing and designing things that really weren't terribly effective, efficient, or satisfying to use. And citizens were left behind, when it, when it come, or customers yeah. were left behind, I think we need to ensure that whatever it is that we do now, from this point on, we have humans at the center of the, of the AI design mm -hmm. and that we create the guardrails to ensure that it is economically viable, whatever it is that we're doing, that it is socially um, observant uh, and that what we're doing is, um, I guess, for the benefit of mankind. Mm -hmm. So if I look 10 years hence, I think we will see a lot of the mundane removed from some of the work that our staff do. Yeah. I think it will be a better place to work because some of those mundane jobs, like I mentioned the VAT receipts yep. and non-VAT receipts, will have been removed from the process. It'll be a really interesting place to work. But I think that that will all happen very slowly. It will all evolve quite slowly really over time. Some of the things that I do think are going to be much, much later are the robotics, for instance. Mm -hmm. that, that's not moving at a pace, I think. Okay. I think some of the hardware is moving quite slowly in comparison to some of the software. So software development, um, really quite fantastic. And I think the hardware, uh, you know, if you look at some of the VR stuff that we're looking at, the metaverse, yeah. I think that's probably slower than most people had imagined. So Katrina, if I understand you correctly, are you saying that AI will have the same impact on society like the internet had like 20 years ago? Yeah, I, I believe it will. Oh, yeah. I believe it will. I think that um, when you look at some of the, uh, the, the jobs that currently rely on mm -hmm. data processing, data engineering, I think it will have a huge impact. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you an example. The, um, one of the, the services and solutions that we've been working on for AI is um, how we deliver our uh, legal services differently. So um, IBM famously created um, uh, ROS, 
It's an artificial intelligence platform. Well, what Ross has done is it's taken all of the legal precedents mm -hmm. across the US, popped them all onto a system. So now if you go into a legal firm in the US and they have Ross working in the background, you can say, what was the winning argument in this case versus <laughs> this case? Okay? Yeah. Or here's my court case. This is what I'm all about. It comes up with all the legal precedent. What you're effectively doing is you're taking a whole bunch of junior lawyers out of the process now because they used to sit and thumb through all those books looking for the court cases, right? I think um, our legal team, for instance, is working on some really interesting SaaS products using AI. One of them is called Data Permissions Navigator. Mm -hmm. Now, data permissions are different around the world. So let's say you opt in in Germany mm -hmm. uh, to an organization. You give them access to your home address. You give them access to your date of birth. You give them access to your bank account. Yeah. Okay, so you've, or maybe your visa card. You've, got, you've given them your permission. That organization in Germany, for instance, um, will subscribe to GDPR, okay? Mm -hmm. And they will only be able to contact you about the services that you opted into. And they're very strict in Germany. Very, very strict in Germany, hence the reason I use it, right? And we have GDPR now adopted in the UK as well. Mm -hmm. But it's not the same in the US. It's not the same in, um, uh, in China. It's yeah. not the same elsewhere. So if you're a global organization and you're the CMO, you're the chief marketing officer, okay? How do you know what to who to swear. send what yeah. to, right? Yeah. And privacy is a really big concern because you could be fined big bucks for getting it wrong. Yeah. So what we've done is our legal team has gone, hold on a minute, we have access through all of our offices to all the privacy information. Mm -hmm. Let's convene all of that. Let's update it in a cloud solution that our clients can download and the CMO at a moment's notice mm -hmm. can go, oh, wow, we can send this out to this, 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 and this. Yeah. We can't send out to these clients. And you can automate the process for sending out flyers or yeah. emails or letters because we've built in the permissions. Yeah, and then now you that, can build it in in your CRM or your, mar correct. your marketing correct. automation tools. Now that's and, when it gets really exciting. That's yeah. when you're building an API yeah. into your existing CRM platform yeah. and using AI to predict what information will need to go next. So okay. for me, that's a really exciting yeah. development for what we would have taken, you know, lots of teams to do around the world yeah. into one single cloud-based SaaS solution. Okay. We all know that Elon Musk is very afraid of artificial intelligence. Oh, he's, he's building robots and, and so on. And I mean, he's a brilliant, a brilliant guy. Yeah. But do you follow him there that's a, that there's a danger that computers are going to take over the world? Well, interestingly, Elon Musk subscribes to two theories about AI and the danger to our planet. The first is why he started SpaceX, and it was to escape to Mars, yeah. right? He's, he's like, and he said this repeatedly, we need to move planets, yeah. okay? Um, it's AI or it's sustainability agenda, but we need to move planets, and that's taking billions of dollars, and it's not necessarily there, right? No. <laughs> the second thing he actually said he subscribes to is he said, I think, quote, he said, I think there's only one billionth of a percentage point that we are not living in a matrix. We are not living in... Um, effectively the Sims, right? So he thinks that AI has gone so advanced that we're actually now not living. We're living in a simulation, he calls it. I don't subscribe to either of those, it must be said. <laughs> um, so, so, I mean, he is obviously one of the world's most intelligent men. I don't subscribe to those. What I subscribe to is the thought that AI can really augment humanity. Mm -hmm. It can supplement what we do. It can improve society. And I'd like to think that you know, we've all got that phone in our pocket, right? We're already interacting with technology 
and it's speeding up. And I think that some of the augmentation that's happening just now for humanity, for instance, in health and life sciences, is brilliant. And I'm so excited about it. I don't think we should escape to Mars or live in a simulation. Katrina, let's talk about another very uh, important technology uh, trend that we see, which is the automation tools, the software robots, RPA, and so on and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, and so how do you look at these? How important are these in your organization today? And how do you see the use of RPA in innovation? Great question. So we have literally hundreds of bots crawling all over our organization. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And we work with um, some fantastic organizations like UiPath in order for us to create, um, really to, to shortcut some of our processes. Mm -hmm. If I look at some of the RPA that we do, we've designed a thing called EY Fabric. EY Fabric is a central shop internally. It's a kind of walled garden internally where we can download pre-prepared bots okay. to augment our processes. And there are literally hundreds of them. We also have API feeds in there as well to augment some of our processes. Yeah. And by delivering EY Fabric to all of our staff around the world, like Lego blocks, we can pull down these to help us. So my favorite example is one of our talent systems, one of our HR systems internally. Um, we have a chat bot that effectively knows the answers to most of our HR questions that any of our staff would ask. Mm -hmm. It supplements our own system and its uh, self-learning program is really, I mean, par excellence. And so what it does is it shortcuts all of our HR processes. You ask it a question, its name is Goldie. Ask Goldie a question, there you are. Superb answers. Mm -hmm. So I think RPA, when it comes to our own internal processes, is fascinating. But we also obviously help our clients um, design, develop, and deploy RPA systems. Yeah. And um, some of the work that we've been doing is, is really quite advanced in that space. Yeah. And I think what's, where it's really becoming interesting is when RPA meets AI, right? Yes. Where you have, where you can and automate mundane tasks, but also build a lot of intelligence in it. Indeed, indeed. So that um, program I mentioned, Data Permissions Navigator, is a really good example of implementing a robotic process automation system by pulling in lots of different data into one, or one, one um, software app yeah. and then augmenting with predictive analytics, which is effectively AI um, through the large model that we've created. Mm -hmm. So it really is now, I think, instrumental when we come up with new products mm -hmm. and solutions for our clients. Yeah. I think it is one of the building blocks for us to be able to do things better. So I mentioned API. So APIs, RPA, and indeed AI, yeah. augmenting what we already do for clients and delivering yeah. greater productivity for our clients through new products and solutions. Yeah. Now there's a lot of research on, on intelligent automation and, and it shows that CIOs see a lot of opportunity there, but they're still struggling to really capture the, the opportunities and the advantages and they're still struggling to let's say, leverage this and, and, and build this uh, and make this big enough. What, what's, what's your experience? What are the steps that organizations need to take to really scale this? Yep. So it really comes back to use case. It really comes back mm -hmm. to, I'd mentioned the double diamond right at the start. Yeah. It really comes back to do your research really carefully. What is it that you're actually trying to do and, and then converge around single use case. Mm -hmm. Don't try to bite off too much mm -hmm. at any one time. Yeah. Then what you do is you 
create that by developing with your users involved in the process and then obviously you have to measure your outcome. Yeah. I think sometimes, Hendrik, we try to bite off more than we can chew. We try to boil the ocean and do too much. Mm -hmm. My guidance is take something, do it really well, yeah. and then create a process that you can deliver time and time and time yeah. again, automating, measuring, automating, yeah. measuring. And I think that that's the way to do it. It's the innovator's dilemma, really, what to do first. There's so much to do, but make sure that you have the right use case. And then I think actually yeah. it's quite straightforward to create the measurement and the ROI. And so what you say for AI is make sure that there's a responsibility, that there's a team that's leading this. Yep. That's probably exactly true for automation as well. Absolutely. Make sure that you have your center of excellence and yep. that you support your users yep. and, and so on. How, how do you look at, um, I mean, another aspect of this, how do you look at citizens' development? Is this something that you would uh, encourage companies to go for and give um, the, the, the normal business user, the tools to do more themselves? I think we have to, and I think we're there already. I think if we look at some of the, the grads joining us or our school leavers joining us, they are incredibly technology savvy. Mm -hmm. we, are, we are recruiting en masse incredibly sophisticated users yep. who expect more of our systems. So by deploying our EY fabric, we're creating a system that allows you, as I said, like Lego blocks, yep. allows you to pull down pre-built low-code solutions yep. for our staff to deploy. Now, as long as you are working within the right guardrails, that is absolutely risk-free and very sensible as an approach. Yep. So let's say, for instance, one of our new grads is working on a program and they um, want to create a better PowerPoint presentation for the client. We absolutely have to give them access to the pre-built robotics process, which is going to allow them to build a whole bunch of PowerPoints at the click of a, a button. So, you know, small things like that make a huge difference to organizations, low-code platforms, no. really, like Power BI. Power BI is, is being done by a great deal of our staff, whereas previously it would have been the techies doing that stuff. So, Katrina, let's talk a little bit more about your team. I mean, your client technology, innovation, how big is that team? How is that organized? And, 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 and how, do you, uh, how do you manage that? So the client technology team and the innovation team is um, a number of teams. So for instance, our innovation centers around the world are called WaveSpace centers. Mm -hmm. We're sitting in the London one right now. Yep. Um, so this team is a team that helps clients effectively decide upon a, a, a challenge and through one or two days of innovation exercises creates the right outcome for that client. So it solves some of the challenges faster. It convenes our people from across our service lines, as we call them. Mm -hmm. So our tax, strategy and transactions, consulting and uh, audit. It convenes those specialists in one place for the client. Um, that's our innovation um, client service. We also have an innovation team that help innovate us internally. Yep. And I mentioned some of the VAT and tax receipts. So that's the kind of work that team does. Yep. And then we have our neurodiversity center of excellence, which I run. And then we have our client tech team. Mm -hmm. Our client tech team is effectively a team of developers, product managers, product marketers, yep. um, and innovators who will effectively design, develop, and support the sales and delivery of our client technology. And that is a team that is made up of service line individuals that rotate into the team to design and build something mm -hmm. and then go back out to the service line. 
Okay. So really important for us in EY is that individuals who feel, who feel really excited about something, really energized by creating and designing something for clients they work with, yep. get the opportunity to work on it. So that rotation model is something that we do around the world. Mm -hmm. And I have the great benefit of working with a number of service line colleagues to enable them to do just that. Okay. So it's a fantastic team. I also obviously work with a whole bunch of the uh, kind of support teams in EY. So our brand and marketing team, mm -hmm. they support the product launches. They support the product sales. I work with our BD team, our business development team. And I also work with our, I mentioned our engineers, uh, a lot of the engineers we work with are based out in India, yep. and I have the great fortune to work with a whole <laughs> massive amount of them, which is just terrific. And of course, our global colleagues. So many different teams that you work with yep. uh, and how it's organized uh, means I can imagine you're very, very busy uh, making. <laughs> but where do you spend most of your time? What's your preferred time of the week? What, what is it that you like to do yep. best? So... Um, from a very um, early point in my career, I made a point of being uh, only client facing mm -hmm. Monday to Thursday and Fridays were my days for admin. Okay. I learned at a very early age, kind of in my 20s, that really the bosses didn't come into the business on a Friday. <laughs> um, Fridays were the days you got less done. Mm -hmm. So what I've done in my own working career is Fridays are my, what I call my one-to-one -one days. So all of my seven leaders who run all of the different teams I look after I set aside time for them on okay. a Friday. That's all I do. It's all the admin, it's all the HR stuff, it's all my team stuff. And people know that they can get me on a Friday if something's urgent. Okay. Monday to Thursday is client time for me. So if I think about uh, my usual working week, well, you know I live in Scotland. Mm -hmm. You can probably tell from the accent that... <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Not so much. So I have the great fortune to live in Scotland. That sees me getting up early on a Tuesday morning and mm -hmm. traveling to either a Manchester office or a London office or a Dublin office, but tend to work Tuesday to Thursday in the office with our clients or on client site. Yep. And um, Monday and Friday, I tend to work from home. So Katrina, we talked about how your, your different teams and how you manage them and how you make time for, uh, for the different team leaders. Um, let's talk a little bit about your leadership style. Because managing teams is one thing, making, helping them uh, to be successful, but leading them is another thing. How do you look at, uh, at leadership? And, and as an add-on question, what do you think your people will say about you when they're having coffee and when you're not around? <laughs> to be a fly in the wall when that conversation yeah. happens. I think my leadership skill um, is probably best summed up by saying that um, I'm quite evangelical about the things I believe in. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to attract people to work with me who want to get things done. Okay. I have a reputation for being able to deliver even when things are difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think, Hendrik, that goes back to my startup background, right? Yeah. So when I was uh, 26 years of age, mm -hmm. um, I moved from, um, from industry to create a startup, as we said at the start of the yep. uh, interview. And I think you just have to get things done. I was the chief marketing officer. I was the chief operations officer. I was the chief HR officer. I was the chief finance officer. And so by effectively building that business from the ground up, I just had to be able to, to be good at lots of different things. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that because that's quite exceptional. Young girl, 26 years old, says, I'm going to change the world and build my own company. How do, how, where did the idea came from and, and how did you start this? So when I um, graduated um, from university, so I did an undergraduate degree in psychology, I then had the opportunity to go to France for a year where I grew up. 
I left Scotland when I was 10, moved to France with my oh, parents. Okay. And so I had the opportunity to go with Erasmus to, to France to study. And it was whilst I was there, I understood all about HCI. The opportunity to work in the field of HCI was something I wanted to yeah. continue with. So I came back and I was at Glasgow University. And after a year there, I thought, you know something, I have to get a job where I can actually implement my HCI skills. Mm-hmm. So I applied and was gratefully accepting of a position to design the first online bank for Barclays mm-hmm. in the city. So I joined Barclays when it was based at 54 Lombard Street in the city of London. Um, it subsequently moved out to Canary Wharf outside of London. But what a fantastic place to work as a 23-year-old right in the heart of the city of London. Mm-hmm. Now, the what that enabled me to do was to effectively work um, with the CEO to build the first online bank for Barclays. His name was Martin Taylor. He was the youngest CEO of of a a big national bank. Mm -hmm. And he got it like that. He said, the internet is going to be big. Let's do this. Let's build an online bank. Mm -hmm. At the start, there really wasn't very much functionality. It was kind of a branch locator. There was, you know, you you could look at your balance, but that was about it. And over time, I was there for nearly five years. We built on the functionality and enabled the organization to effectively introduce online banking. So I think um, Seren really came as a a result of me understanding that what I gave in terms of skills to that project was my human-centered approach to design. The bank was incredibly successful, the online bank, because we had involved consumers in all of the research, Mm -hmm. in all of the development, in all of the testing, and then in what additional functionality they would like to be built. So I thought to myself, well, listen, this has got, I've got to do this for a living. I um, left um, the organization. I worked for GE for a short time, but my heart wasn't really in it. I left the organization and I started walking the city with a business case. So I was just turned 26. Mm -hmm. I had a business case that said, I've helped build this online organization. I've then done it at GE. I want to do this for a lot of other organizations, particularly in the city. I want to build the online systems. And people in the heyday, Hendrik, in 2000, everyone was getting funding. It was a dot-com boom. Yeah, yeah, 99 to 2000. Money was a commodity. Money was so easy (laughs) to get, but but it wasn't for me. And I couldn't really understand why. And it wasn't until I left a meeting and I spoke to a very friendly investor and I said to this chap, listen, I don't understand why I'm not, I'm not asking for the earth. I don't understand why no one's willing to invest. This mm-hmm. is a really good business with a great idea. And this chap said to me, listen, Katrina, come on, you're 26. You've got an engagement ring on. You're going to have a baby. You're going to leave the business. Why would anyone give you money? Okay. Now, in those days, I think, sadly, that was probably quite common mm-hmm. in the city. Not so much now. And I'm absolutely delighted to say that. Mm-hmm. But I went back and I reflected on this. And I thought to myself, do you know something? I'll have to, I'll have to hire a couple of guys to go in with me. <laughs> so I did just that. So I went in with uh, two individuals, um, males, um, older, um, and within the first two meetings, I had my million pounds. Mm-hmm. So I selected the organisation I wanted to work with, and then I had the difficult task of going in and actually confessing mm-hmm. that uh, those two <laughs> individuals <laughs> were not going to join the business. And uh, one investor turned to me and said, well, that's okay because we love you. And I thought, wow, the door was opened, (laughs) but I made it work. Okay. So um, I went on to then find the most incredible colleagues to do this with. 
um, we really did recruit the best. An incredible individual who, would, who was working at BT, yep. doing UX, UI, an incredible um, commercial leader um, who was working at Cisco at the time. And between us, we created this um, startup that just grew and grew and grew. Yep. Because at that point, technology design had been done so badly by, by so many people, there was lots of stuff to fix. Yep. And so fortunately for us, with the pedigree that we all came with, yep. we were able to scale the business rapidly, mm-hmm. open offices in Paris, in Dubai, in Riyadh, in uh, London. It, we scaled the organization. We had 48 of the top 100 FTSE mm-hmm. at one point on our books. It was a very profitable business, and we designed some of the most incredible technologies, Hendrik. Yep. I am so proud of that period of my life. So... I mean, a super impressive story. I mean, now a 26-year-old girl builds a, a very, very successful uh, design studio, focuses on, on human uh, computer interfaces. But what I'm wondering is, then in 2015, you sell the business to EY, and you come in a completely different culture. How do you, how do you manage that, being uh, from startup, scale-up, yep. and then in a big company like yep. this? Well, you know, something... EY wasn't the only suitor, if I can put it that way. Um, Over the years of having the business between 2000 and 2015, 15 years, many, many organizations tried to buy us Mm -hmm. or partner with us, and we rejected them all. It wasn't until we felt like we had the right time to sell the business that we started proactively engaging. And we had a number of organizations vying to buy us. But it wasn't until we met EY that we actually saw a similar culture. Okay. Now, EY's um, whole raison d'etre is to build a better working world. Mm-hmm. And that's actually fundamentally what we were doing in Seren. Yeah. We built the UK's government system guidelines so that no citizen was ever left behind. Mm-hmm. We built the systems for most of the banks. We built, the, um, we built an incredible amount of organisation systems with universal accessibility at the heart. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what EY wanted us to do for them. They wanted us to continue doing what we did best, which is building with accessibility at the heart, humans at the center of the Mm -hmm. approach, and uh, they haven't let me down. (laughs) I'm delighted to say, Hendrik, that actually just upstairs is the London Seren office now, which is fantastic. So I'm still very, very close to my, (laughs) my previous colleagues right upstairs from my client tech and innovation team down here. Okay. Katrina, let's talk a little bit more about you as a person. And because I believe there's a big correlation between uh, success and, and digital leadership, success and personality uh, and, and, and how you're wired and how you think and what your values are and, and, and so on. And so we already, I already touched on the question, but what is it if I go to your colleagues here, to uh, <laughs> certain colleagues? And I avoided them, that question. <laughs> so you avoided it, but we're coming back to it. Okay. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh-huh. What is that going to say about you? I think um, I mentioned I was evangelical about things I believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes I can leave people behind. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite difficult to keep up with me sometimes because I am very much about getting the job done. Okay. Um, And I think that I've learned um, that I attract similar types of people, but sometimes I have to bring people on the journey with me. Mm -hmm. And so what they might say is, gosh, she moves too fast. (laughs) She she expects a lot. I have very high standards, very high standards because I work hard. Um, 
it's probably my Glaswegian upbringing. Um, <laughs> my father joined IBM in the 60s. Wow. So he's been working in technology for a long, long time before he retired recently. And my mother was an entrepreneur. So interestingly, I think I have the best of both worlds. <laughs> so you combine the best. Well, exactly, yeah, right? Yeah. But, but moreover than, than that, they are both grafters. And I think that has absolutely, I, you know, I started working uh, part-time jobs all the way through school, all the way through university. And I never really wanted to stop working because I do believe fundamentally that, you know, as I said before, building a better working world mm -hmm. is absolutely the heart of what I want to do. And universal accessible design, humans at the center of everything we do, including AI by mm -hmm. design, is incredibly important. So I love what I do. It's not like <laughs> it's a job. Um, I think I'd be incredibly boring if I stopped working, incredibly boring, um, because I just absolutely love what I do. And I think people would say she is very resilient. She moves at pace. Yep. She loves what she does. She's evangelical about it, but boy, she's hard to keep up with. <laughs> <laughs> but you also told me that you have a farm at home. So if you stop the job, you can go farming, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm not sure that would be enough. <laughs> no, I, d I definitely thrive on teamwork. Okay. Um, and that's something that, um, no, my husband does the farming, okay. but I definitely thrive on teamwork. And I really, really love mentoring people. You know, when I was 26 and I was starting up that business, there was one mentor in my life mm -hmm. who was just incredible. His name was John Horner. Mm -hmm. And uh, he worked for Arcadia, a big retail organization at the time. And he was so supportive. He said, you've got to do this. What you've done for us has been phenomenal. You have to do this. And, you know, obviously the support of family and friends is important as well. But I think being a mentor and helping others succeed is absolutely essential to my job. Okay. Now, Katrina, you shared with us your MBTI profile. Oh, did yes. And so your protagonist ENFJ. So, uh, so you're a person with extroverted, intuitive, feeling, and judging personality traits. And these are typically warm, forthright types that love helping others, and they tend to have strong ideas and values, and they back their perspective with creative energy to achieve their goals. I'm gonna give you five strengths of the typical uh, protagonist ENFJ. And so you tell me which one stands out that you recognize most. So typically the strengths of an ENFJ is that they are very receptive. They like to listen to people. They're very reliable. You can count on them. They're very passionate, altruistic, and charismatic. Which one uh, resonates best for you? Passionate. Okay. I, I, I don't do things unless I feel passionate about mm -hmm. them. Um, so I recognize that. I, I recognize them all. That was the weird <laughs> thing about doing that. I hadn't done that uh, MBTI thing in years, Hendrik. Uh -huh. And so I'm really grateful, actually, that you made me do this. Um, but yes, absolutely, the passionate stands out for me. Okay. So, but every coin has a, uh, has a flip side. So let's talk about your weaknesses, your development areas. And, and let's talk it in, uh, about it in the sense that how have you overcome some of these weaknesses? Mm -hmm. uh, so protagonists can sometimes be unrealistic in their expectations. They can be overly idealistic in what they want to achieve. They like to explain things to people, and if they go too far in that, they can be condescending to people. Uh, they can be sometimes very, very intense, and they can also be overly empathetic. Which one of these do you recognize really that was, that's one of my things, and how, how do you overcome that? How have you developed in, in uh, overcoming this weakness? Yep. So I think I'll, I'll focus on intense. Mm -hmm. um, I can be very intense. Mm -hmm. I, I mentioned evangelical about things. Yep. I absolutely can be. If I believe in something, then 
I'll want to do it. I'll yeah. want to deliver on it. And that's quite difficult for, for teams to bring them along on the journey. So my intensity, um, what I try to do is I, uh, and many colleagues will tell you they've been to my home. Mm -hmm. I tend to find common ground with people mm -hmm. so that they'll forgive some of my exuberance sometimes yeah. <laughs> um, and my driving personality because I'll get to know them on a personal level. Mm -hmm. They'll get to know me. And I think by engendering support um, and um, by showing kindness and by understanding the people outside of work, yeah. you can build that, uh, I guess, camaraderie, you can build that fellowship. fellowship. Um, and so sometimes when I'm too intense, you know, I expect people to say to me, hold on a minute, calm down, we can't achieve that. <laughs> and um, because I know them, yeah. um, then, you know, it's easier for me. Yeah. So you're leaving less people behind Correct. than when you were still young. Correct. Correct. When you were still younger. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I was an incredibly intense student and tried to do everything. Okay. So I took up Russian when I was at Glasgow University. Oh. I played a lot of sports. Um, doesn't look like it now, but I was incredibly competitive at sports. A lot of sports. So you speak Tennis, hockey. French, Russian? Ah, a little bit of Russian. <laughs> but yeah, but French, and, uh, French and English, bilingual. Okay. So you grew up in French? I did. French school? Yep. From 11 until? Well, it was an international lycée. Ah. Uh, from the age of 11 until I was nearly 18. And where was that? In Paris. In Paris, wow. I know, so beautiful. Such okay. a fabulous city. Okay, London, Paris, Glasgow, some of the most beautiful cities in the world. All so. lovely. I'm glad you included Glasgow in that. <laughs> so, Katrina, do you have a, a personal mantra, a saying that helps you to make, I don't know, tough decisions or in, just in general in your life? So, I know this is really boring, but, but when we were selling Seren to EY, the Building a Better Working World mantra meant a lot to us. Yeah. And actually, I don't think I'd want to digress from that and mm -hmm. have my own. I do honestly believe that building a better working world is what we're doing for ourselves, it's what we're doing for our clients and what we're doing for society. Mm -hmm. And I think it fits the bill. So I'd like to say that I am putting humans at the center of our technological development yeah. to build a better working world. Okay, super. Let's dive one level deeper in this leadership deep dive interview. And let's talk about your values, the core values that you live by, that you have received maybe from your parents and that you're passing on to your children. You um, have told us that you have three lovely children, 19, 17, 12 years old. What is that you want to see them grow up into? What is the values that you're passing on to them? So um, until I did my MBTI with you, I didn't actually realize that, that these were the kind of core values. I mean, really, the MBTI thing was incredibly accurate. Um, I think the passion to do something and do it well is incredibly important. I think bringing people along on that journey, being receptive to new ideas, um, being evangelical about things once you've started them to follow through and complete mm -hmm. them is really important. But I think doing it with kindness mm -hmm. is really important as well. Yeah. So um, it's, it's not often I tell this story, but I'm going to because it kind of brings to life... Um, how I feel about things and how my children feel about things. So um, there was a, 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 an old lady standing at a bus stop <laughs> just last week. Mm -hmm. um, and it was raining. You know, it's Scotland where I live. Wow. It rains a lot. There was an old lady standing at the bus stop. And um, so I had my daughter in the front seat of the car. I said, Sophia, just you climb into the back. And she said, why, mummy? I said, well, because we're going to give the old lady a lift. Yep. So she climbed into the back. She didn't think twice. She just she didn't say, no, what are we doing? She just climbed into the back. And I pulled down the window and I said to this elderly lady, 
would you like a lift? No. She was going completely the wrong direction. We were going to be late for whatever we were going to, but I couldn't stand by and not see a moment of kindness mm -hmm. pass my daughter and I by like that. So yeah. yeah, we went in the wrong direction. We took the lady to her home. The bus would have been another 40 minutes and she would have been drenched. And after that kind of thing, Sophia goes, came home and said to my husband, oh, mommy did that thing again. <laughs> <laughs> mommy did that thing again, that kindness thing. Mm. And um, my husband just said, what did you do this time? <laughs> because um, I'm constantly, you'll see me in the cafeteria here. Mm -hmm. And what I'll often do is I'll just say to the cafeteria staff, the next 10 people can have a coffee on me and I'll just stand there and wait and tap the card. Um, I do think that there are tiny little things that we can do in our life that are um, moments of kindness, I call them. It makes, um, it makes the world a better place. Yeah. <laughs> and so kindness is something I'm passing on to my children. Good leadership, I think, mm -hmm. has to include bringing your team yeah. with you. And you believe your children grow up in a better place than back in our days when we grew up? Is the, better, the world better now than it was back then? Well, we live in the countryside. So I'd have to say it's a very different experience for my children. So I grew up in uh, Glasgow and Paris and then back to Glasgow and then Edinburgh and then London. So cities all my life. I think um, it's very different being in a suburb than it is being in a city. I think I see a lot of poverty in the cities that I, um, that I didn't really um, expect to experience now. So I think about some of the, the poverty, the homelessness in London and Glasgow that I see. And I think that's, that's, that's not great. Okay. Um, in the country, we have, um, for instance, during COVID, we had um, uh, a lot of support for individuals. Um, people would get their shopping for them. Uh, since the um, energy crisis, we've had a thing called warm spaces. Our churches and our pubs and things are open for free for people to come and get warm in. Oh. And I think that's something that community that I have where I live in the country has been really, really great during COVID and also okay. during the energy crisis. I can't say the same for the cities that I've, I haven't experienced as much kindness in the cities. So you would say your children are fortunate that they can live, uh, grow very, up in a, in a small, uh, very small Very fortunate, okay. very fortunate. But of course, they won't stay there. You know, <laughs> they're desperate to get to a city and that's absolutely fine. But I'm hoping that we've given them enough of a head start yep. um, in terms of building a community and understanding that yep. each individual is important in that community. Yep. Let's talk about, um, and then we come back to personal things. Let's talk a little bit about your business experience uh, and one of my favorite questions in these interviews is, if you look back on, on your years of success that you had, we all make our mistakes, we all make our, make our failures. So can you uh, just pick one that you think is your most brilliant failure and tell us what you learned from it? Yep, so it's a really good one. I think you'll find this really interesting. So <clears throat> in Saren in 2006, 2005, 2006, we um, won uh, a client and it was to design the world's first online poker room. <laughs> poker room. Gambling. Wow. And so uh, we had a whole bunch of consumers come in and we were thinking about what would the design need to be. Not being a big poker, poker player myself, mm -hmm. we had to learn from the consumers who were coming in to tell us how to design things. One of my colleagues said, listen, what we should do is we should be using eye tracking software to understand where they're looking on the screen. We should also be using biometric data to understand... When they get excited and... Uh, correct, yeah. correct. And taking that one step further, we could use EEG technology, electroencephalography graph technology, to monitor their brainwaves to see how they're actually feeling. 
because EEG technology manages a whole bunch of spectra. Mm -hmm. But there's one in particular called gamma. And that gamma wave in your brain, when you are really energized, excited, mm -hmm. or angry, the gamma is really low. Okay. Okay, it's the opposite from what you'd expect. Yeah. When you're bored or asleep, it's really high. Now, we took a biometric, um, basically just a, a pulse monitor yeah. on a finger. We borrowed EEG equipment from a local university and we managed the eye tracking in the software. Yeah. And we looked using these three different data sets, we looked at how to optimize the experience mm -hmm. of the online poker wow. room. We designed the most intuitive, the most engaging, the most exciting mm -hmm. online poker experience you could ever imagine. It was phenomenal. Then we did that for all these other gaming companies. What I really regret is patenting that technology because <laughs> it was actually a world first. Oh, yeah. We were designing things using people's mental models without verbatims, without them telling us how they felt, without subjectivity. Yep. It was completely objective. And we designed some world-class technology. So you should have protected that IP. And, I, yep. Honestly, if we'd patented or IP'd that, yep. we would have been in a, in a really <laughs> interesting place. But I also don't think that we're necessarily using it terribly much now. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it would, be really, it would be really interesting to have created... Um, a methodology to do that really effectively. Okay. So that's, that's one example. Nice example. Let's go back to your personal life. If you look back and, and, um, and let's take your husband, finding your husband, getting your children are obvious highlights in your life. But if we take these hope out, so. <laughs> <laughs> if we take these out, what is for you the best thing that has ever happened to you in your life? Um, removing family um, and and some of those, I, I, think, I think the highlight for me was in 2003, when the UK government at that time, Tony Blair was in power, mm -hmm. reached out to me and asked me to co-author the guidelines to create online services for the UK government. Mm -hmm. So I went into this working party in the, just around the corner from the Houses of Parliament. And over a period of about a year, we worked with various different government organizations to design a citizen-centric design standard mm -hmm. for the whole government. So I'm very, very conscious that without those standards, people wouldn't be able to use the government services that we created. They wouldn't. Um, there were 380 departments with websites across the UK government, all entirely different. Now, we also hadn't built them with accessibility in mind or universal design. So there were people with disabilities, uh, the RNID, the Royal National Institute of the Blind, uh, of the Deaf, etc., etc. We engaged all of those third parties in this design agenda mm -hmm. and we created the guidance to create accessible government systems. We also made sure that anybody who is a supplier to the government, who are providing systems for citizens, also had to adhere to the guidance. So what we were doing, if you were um, going to be closing branch, bank branches around, around the UK, and for instance, in the Northern Highlands, there was not going to be a bank, you were ensuring that that bank site would be accessible for people with any disabilities. That was so successful that the EU adopted it. And okay. I went out to the EU and I helped the European Union design and address some of the guidance and standards. So for me, building that standard so early on 
ensured that millions of people getting a driver's license, getting your passport, doing your yeah. road tax, applying for planning permission, any of those things um, you could do and you could do it with ease. And so that for me is a big highlight. Okay. I mean, there were others, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I mean, Skype, the National Lottery, yeah. a whole bunch of things. But that for me was absolutely the pinnacle of my career. So highlights, many highlights in your life, but um, th there's also bad things that happen to us and, and, as, and in our personal life as well. Is if you care to share what is, what's maybe one of the worst things that happened in your life and how did you overcome that and what did you learn from that? Well, taking aside, um, you know, family illnesses and things like that that have happened, I think one of the worst things was probably year five of our business. Uh, the UK hit a big recession and as a startup, obviously cash was king. Mm -hmm. We had, uh, we worked for the FTSE, the FTSE Top 100. So the largest organisations in the UK, but the slowest payers. Okay. So we had one client who we'd done a great deal of work for and the payment was getting into the 180 days. Now, as an organization with a great number of staff at this point, um, our cash flow really took a hit. We tried a thing called invoice financing. You know, so you're gonna get money from a third party for the work that you've delivered, so you get the cash, but therefore your gross margin goes down. So it was really a difficult time. Myself and my co-directors elected not to take a salary for a good number of months. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't easy because we weren't taking terribly much money out of the company yep. because it was such early days. So having the support of my husband, who at the time was working for a big PLC, and my, my family was really important. That was really hard, though, to be a very successful entrepreneur, mm -hmm. to have a very successful company, yep. but not to be able to take a salary, not to worry about the cash flow. That was hugely difficult. And I think looking back now, I think, gosh, you know, maybe there could have been other loan facilities that were open to us, but there weren't. It was a recession. It was just too tough. Yeah. So thankfully, we survived the storm um, and it grew and grew and grew. And um, as a result, um, there were very few organizations like us who did survive. So we were in a very large market with a very small number of competitors. So we did great. <laughs> so, Katrina, before we come to the end of uh, this story, I want to know what is that? You had a, a, a lovely career, lovely personal life, very successful. What is it that you are most grateful for? What is the, the one gift that you have received that you say this is, this is really extraordinary? Oh, gosh. I mean... There's a couple. Am I allowed to? Sure. To, okay, good. Well, I mean, I'm incredibly grateful for my heritage. So my father, who was the technologist, my mother, who was the entrepreneur, I managed to marry both of those together in my own career. And I'm incredibly grateful for the fantastic upbringing they've given me. I think I'm also incredibly grateful to EY as an organization mm -hmm. for changing my life and that of my family by buying EY Seren. So mm -hmm. by, say, by buying Seren. Um, the transaction was, uh, you know, a relatively easy process. The people absolutely love the firm they work for now, which is fantastic. It's a great culture. But I think what was really interesting for me was that they said, listen, your skills are incredible. Come here and do this different role. Yep. So when they acquired EY Seren, I was given a global role. So I was brought into the global organization mm -hmm. um, rather than managing Seren. They gave me different opportunities, which is what I was after. Put me in the global organization. I got to work with some incredible innovators. 
I got to see the inner workings of the organisation. I got to meet all of the leadership. I mean, it was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And then I said, listen, I need to be a bit closer to home. And instead of leaving the organisation, they offered me something here in Europe. So they are I'm incredibly loyal to this organisation that mm -hmm. changed my life. I said that of my family because I did distribute the the um, earnings that I had from the sale yep. amongst my family. Oh, yeah. So I was cool. very fortunate to be able to do that. Um, and then they've given me the most incredible career opportunities. So I'm incredibly grateful to both my heritage mm -hmm. um, from you know my family, but also obviously the opportunities EY has given me. Okay. Now, EY and CIONET, we work together for quite some time now already and doing uh, great programs together. So why is for you a community of CIOs important? Why is for you uh, CIONET important? Why do you support us in, in, in building this community? If you think about the ecosystem that we work within now, it's incredibly complex. Mm -hmm. So the technology ecosystem for any organization includes incredible hardware providers, cloud providers, software providers, API, SaaS. It's very complex. Yep. <laughs> I mean, in an organization like us, we've hundreds of technology partners. Yep. And so what CIONet gives me mm -hmm. is the opportunity to meet with peers to understand how their ecosystem works, yep. what they're deploying, how they're using it, the best practice that's out there, because it is just so complex. I don't think any one person can know it all. Mm -hmm. So the opportunity to network with incredible CIOs to understand the ecosystem, but also equally the alliance partners. So to meet the hardware and software vendors and yeah. alliances um, is equally important. I mentioned UiPath earlier, a fantastic alliance of ours and one who I am really grateful to for some of the work that we've done with CIONet. Okay, super. And so... Last question. Thank you so much for your time. It was really, really a pleasure and for your hospitality here and, and your beautiful wave space. Thanks for coming to London. Of course, <laughs> our favorite city. So these videos, these leadership deep dives are watched by many people around the globe, but also by quite a number of ambitious uh, professionals that want to follow in your footsteps. Uh, so what is the advice that you would give to these young people ambitious professionals that want to conquer the world? Wow, gosh, well, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, you know, two really good pieces of advice. I think find your passion mm -hmm. and ensure that you build a following. You build a team around you to help you manage that passion, to mm -hmm. help you succeed. So the passion for me has always been technology, but the form of technology that I practice and preach is about human-centered design. It's about putting humans at the center of technology. So find your passion, then build the team around you, and you can't go wrong. So it's too large and too complex technology. You need to find a specialism. You need to be evangelical about it. Yep. Um, and then make sure that nothing stops you. Make sure that you keep going. Uh, in the face of adversity, <laughs> it is hard sometimes, but keep going because as long as you have a passion for something, you'll love it. I have loved my career. And with that, on that note, thank you so much, Katrina. It was really a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Hendrik. Thank you.